Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Being called our greatest living composer by the New York Times or the most original music thinker of our time by the New Yorker should already say enough about a creator. Steve Reich is certainly all that and even a bit more. Experienced in the field of Western classical, Reich managed to transcend regional and cultural boundaries, incorporating influences from around the world as well as from the past, present, and future. Born in 1936, he walked his own way alongside other American minimalists like Philip Glass, Terry Riley, and John Adams, although Reich himself prefers the term post-minimalism. Repetition and the use of speech and field recordings mark the cornerstones of his vast body of work. Among his most famous, adventurous, and critically acclaimed works are Different Trains, Music for 18 Musicians, and pieces like Come Out. Listen in to this interview at the 2010 Red Bull Music Academy as the composer discusses it all. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. So I think really we should just say a very big warm welcome to Mr. Steve Reich. Now, there's a lovely quote at the end of um, Alex Ross's book, And the Rest is Noise, where he quotes Debussy saying, the job of the composer is to find, to point a way to this imaginary, imaginary country, essentially the place which was off the map, that's what he says, which has struck me as a very nice idea. Perhaps can you give us an idea of how far off the map you were when you started making music? Never thought of it that way. <laughs> Um, I was a kid, I took piano lessons, and um, when I was uh, 14 years old, for the first time, I heard uh, The Rite of Spring, uh, The Fifth Brandenburg Concerto, and uh, Bebop, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and the drummer Kenny Clark, and I had a friend who was a better piano player than me, and he was playing some jazz, and he said, we need to form a band, we need a drummer, and I said, I'm it. So I began studying drums at 14 with uh, Roland Koloff who became the timpanist with the New York Philharmonic, but he was also, he played the local um, movie house with glow-in-the-dark sticks at midnight, so um, he, uh, he had a double life. This is back in 1950. Glow-in-the-dark sticks? Glow-in-the-dark sticks, yeah. You play Gene Cooper drum solos in the movie house with glow-in-the-dark sticks in the dark house, yeah. This was a, this was a, this was a trip in the 1950s. Uh, in any event, uh, I didn't start with tape. Uh, I did, the tape didn't exist. Uh, I think when I was in high school, I think someone said, hey, there's a tape recorder. I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's, you can actually record, you know, something into it. And it was, it was basically when the American army went into Germany after the war, they discovered that the Germans had built tape recorders. And um, the first recorder that I saw was called Volensack, which is obviously a German name. And um, that's uh, actually what I used when uh, I did uh, It's Gonna Rain. <laughs> Now, when you were growing up, or sort of in the early days, you talk about encountering this tape recorder. It was very unusual for people to own machines. There were obviously were machines in the world, but it was unusual to actually own them. When you first came across this tape machine that you describe, what was your impression of it? Well, it was cheap. Uh, you know, you could buy it. Uh, Wallensax and I think Revere made one too, uh, were the first uh, home machines. Uh, radio stations obviously had them. I think in those days, Ampex was the big brand. They've long since disappeared. Um, anyway, so I, I had this thing. And at first, it was just a way of like, you know, recording if you're playing something or recording your voice or whatever. But when I became, uh, I, when did I really start getting interested in I guess I started getting interested when I moved to San Francisco in uh, 1961, 62. And uh, uh, I was studying with Luciano Berrio, the Italian composer. And what he was working on when I started working with him was a piece called Omaggio a Joyce, meaning James Joyce. And what was that? What it was was his wife, Kathy Barbarian, who was a really good singer. And she was reading bits of Joyce, and he was cutting up the tape in little pieces into phonemes, which is really sort of what the book was about anyway. Because uh, this was very late, very far out, you know, non-narrative type 
writing. Uh, so that basically you were hearing the sound of letters and not really focusing on their meaning. Uh, and I thought it was interesting. Then he played us, uh, I'm just telling you, he played us two pieces of Stockhausen. One piece was like called Electronic Studies, and the piece was called Gesang the Junglinger. And my ear just went, shh, Gesang the Junglinger. Why? Because there was a voice of a young kid. And I began to realize I'm not interested in electronics. And I was never interested, and I am still not interested, in synthesis. Couldn't care less. It's a marriage of convenience, but I don't like it. I am interested in really analog sound. Um, and therefore, when the sampler was invented, I said, <laughs> that's for me. Um, so uh, the f when I uh, began, uh, another thing that was in the air in the um, late 50s, early 60s was tape loops. Uh, raise your hand if you know what a tape loop is. Okay, well, tape loop is <laughs> when there was reel-to-reel -reel tape, you could take, put in a splicing block and, and, you know, literally splice the beginning to the end of a, you know, six, seven-inch, three-inch piece of tape. And these small tape recorders that I'm talking about, the, the head assembly was small enough so that you could fit the loop over the, over the, uh, the head assembly, press the go button, and it would compress up against the head and play back. So you have these very, very fast, and you'd be recording at seven and a half inches per second. And, you know, you, could, you, you got, what was, you know, very, very uh, unusual results that people had never, nobody had ever heard, you know, in, in, in the 1950s or 60s. And at that time, I also became aware of African music, West African music, uh, both by listening to recordings and by discovering a book uh, called Studies in African Music, which was the first book of uh, accurate scores of music from Ghana. I think you can find it online, actually. Uh, Google's, you know, going to steal everything, so I think they managed to get this one so far. And if you look at the, you know, if any, anybody here uh, or do have any familiarity with notation, musical notation? Okay, for those of you who do, we could talk about, this is another interesting thing I think to talk about. Uh, for those of you who do, you'll see basically divisions into subdivisions of 12, patterns in three beats, patterns in four beats, patterns in six beats, patterns in 12 beats. But what's strange is that you say, well, where's a downbeat? Where's one? Well... The rattle has it here. This drummer has it there. This player. Now, you know that's 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 for Mars. You know, when 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 you listen to rock, you know you got generally you've got you know you're in four four and you know everybody knows where one is. Here's a music where there is no one downbeat. There are multiple downbeats depending on the player, and they just feel it that way. All right, that when I was working with the the multiple tape loops, and hearing this, I was saying, hey, what have I got here? Mechanized Africans. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Gotta get a break, huh? <laughs> no, I think we should, there's, there's so much to talk about in there. There's actually, when you went to Ghana and the difference between how it seemed when you read about it and actually what it was like at the university and, and also what you experienced outside of that. But I think we should bring it back for a minute, back to the piece of music that we're going to play and that we're talking about. Can you tell us what we're going to be listening to? Okay. Um, she's right. Uh, it's going to rain. So uh, in 1964, near the end of the year, a friend whose name I forget now, who was make, going to make films and never did, said, I have heard the most amazing black Pentecostal preacher down in Union Square in San Francisco. You've got to record him. And I had a, I had a, um, a Ewer portable tape recorder. Um, and a um, Electro Voice cheap shotgun mic. So I went down on a Sunday, and sure enough, there was this guy who called himself Brother Walter, and he was preaching about the flood, the, the flood of Noah in the Bible, which is about the end of the world. Now, this is 1964. In 1963 was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Anybody, anybody know what that is? Okay, the Cuban Missile Crisis was this. Khrushchev, who was the head of Russia, had sent over nuclear missiles on a boat for installation in Cuba. And John F. Kennedy, who was president of the United States, said to Khrushchev, if you do that, we're going to bomb Moscow with hydrogen bombs. So everybody was kind of concerned. And the ships kept on going, and there was a blockade around Cuba, and, you know, I mean... 
we, many of us, me included, felt that, you know, the clock is ticking. We could just turn into so much radioactive smoke. Fortunately, Khrushchev backed down. So don't think of JFK as a peace-loving wimp. Forget it. <laughs> um, and it passed, but it, you know, it, it made a mark, I think, in every human being who was alive then. So when a year later, I'm in, I'm in Union Square, and this, this preacher is really laying it down about the end of the world, it's not abstract. It's not abstract at all. So anyway, uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play the, uh, uh, maybe I'll play the whole first movement, which is about, I don't know, what is it, six, seven minutes? Um, the whole piece is 17 minutes. It's about six, seven minutes. And then what I want to do is explain you know, how I made it. Because some of it's going to be very clear to you as to how I made it. And some of it's going to be a little bit weird. You're going to wonder what. And, and what it turns out is that actually I was doing some DJing, but I didn't know what that was. I was playing a preamp. And we can talk about that because it's, I realize now, hey, I'm going to just push this and then I'm going to sit in the back because it's weird to sit here while you're listening. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. So you come back from Union Square with your recording. How do you take your recording from how it sounded as you played it back to that? Good question. Uh, first of all, I'm going to ask you, see if anybody can pick it up. When you hear him, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. And you hear in the background, wah, 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 wah. there's a drummer, right? But it's not a drummer. So what was it? Any guesses? Yeah, somebody cheated. <laughs> yeah, I, the moment I record, I mean, you know, who knows? The moment I recorded, I was recording him. And so when he said, it's going to rain, a pigeon took off. And when you looped it, man, the pigeon was just, you know, <laughs> pigeon drummer. Didn't have to pay him extra. He wasn't doubling. <laughs> so, so that's just there. You know, that's just there. Now, what I, what I was saying at, at the beginning, the piece starts in mono. And uh, you just, you hear the source material. You say, oh, this is like some really strong black preacher laying it down about Noah. And then you hear this funny, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Now what's happening there is that I've got a loop, I've got a stereo loop. And on one track is it's going to rain, and the other track is it's going to rain, but they're offset. So that it's gonna is on top of rain and rain is on top of it's gonna. So if I go back in the tempo of the loop, I'll get it's gonna, 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 it's gonna. But what if I get a little bit faster with my hand than the tempo of the loop itself? Then I'm gonna start phasing ahead, and it's gonna that's what you heard. And there's two cycles of that. So it's it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, and and you're moving ahead because your hand, I had a I had a weird preamp. It was one of these preamps that had a lot of controls that looked like, you know, who needs them? But you know, it turned out there was this mono A, mono B. So you could have all of the A track coming out of both tracks or all of the B coming out of both tracks. So I was just going back and forth between mono A, mono B, trying to start off in rhythm and then gradually phase ahead of the tape myself, again, going from mono to mono, mono to mono, mono to mono to mono to mono. And then finally, after two cycles of that, you're going, it's going, it's going, it's going, it's going, it's, it's, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, and you're back in the mono loop coming out of both channels. And then all of a sudden you hear, like a change in quality. What is it? It goes into stereo. It goes into stereo. And you feel that. You, it's like something weird's happening. Now, for those of you who know, you, you know exactly what it is that's happening. And then what happens is that slowly, I think it's the left-hand side, begins to go faster. Now, why? Well, maybe the loop, I tried to cut the loops as perfectly as I can. But, you know, what does that mean? There's going to be some little fractional difference between them, right? Maybe there's a little bit of dirt on one of the wall inside. Maybe the motors, these are, these are not like, you know, you know, the kind of motors we have today. These are like motors that could have a certain amount of drift to them. So one channel begins to slip ahead of the other. Now, the effect of the sound coming in sooner than the other will give you the sense of direction location. You will hear it coming from the side that is coming in first. That's the effect of it. So if you're, if you're listening to the piece with headphones, it feels like this. 
Soundsy comes down your left shoulder, goes down your arm, slides across your leg, <laughs> begins to go, it was creepy. He <laughs> goes across the room, and then you begin to hear reverberation, finally, when it gets far enough apart. But when it's really close together, and you could, uh, I suppose you could do this digitally, and you have slight differences in what comes in first. So this was established in Bell Labs years ago. Like, how, do, how do we know where our voice is coming from? Somebody yells, at us, you know, where, where are they? Well, it gets to a one ear sooner than the other, and we know, oh, they're close. Well, we don't think about it at all. We just look in that direction. So this is that phenomena happening here in this piece. And then it, then it very slowly goes around from unison, out of phase, pigeon drummer, whole nine yards, back into unison, and then it's going to rain after a while. Now, the second movement gets very far out and very spooky, and, very, and I thought very paranoid, but maybe given the, what was going on in the world, it wasn't. But I won't go through that. If you're interested, it's, it's quite a trip. And it's where he's in the ark and he locks the door and people knock with the skin came off their hand, but the door was sealed by the hand of God. And it's, it is the end of the world. It is a portrayal in sound of the end of the world. And yes, I was in a bad state of mind at the time. <laughs> um, how did how did the music sound to you at the time, and how was it seen by people you played it to, and by people who heard it? Well, the first question I can answer, and the second question they can answer. Um, when I when I did the first part, there was no question that it was incredibly what you just heard felt to me like incredibly invigorating and like wow, what energy and this guy's fantastic, and this is really the way to deal with this the treatment of the voice and the voice itself are hand in glove. And I think that that's a general principle that can be applied to most anything that you're doing. If the musical material, whether it's notes or whether it's sampled material, and what you're doing with it really reinforce each other, then you're probably on the right track. Now, this is a very intuitive thing, and there's no rules about this, but there is a gut feeling about it. And different material wants different technical treatment, different musical treatment. As to how it affects people, you know, you pass the mic around and find out. <laughs> I suppose what I'm more interested in is how it was perceived by people at the time. So when people heard it, what did they make of it? Well, first of all, I was, you know, nobody was giving me interviews in London and uh, I was driving a cab in San Francisco and uh, <laughs> I just got, I was just out of graduate, I was actually, yeah, I was just out of graduate school and I decided I wasn't going to teach. So I, I was a cab driver and one day I was like kind of really zonked out. I just going five miles an hour when you know you're coming, you know, you can't have any problems because you got your foot on the brake, you're just inching forward and I just inched right in the back of somebody. So then I ended up working at the post office. <laughs> So, uh, you know, what, a few people came over to my house and said, man, that's far out, you know. Okay, you know, it's true. Um, and then it was played at the San Francisco Tate Music Center, and, you know, people said, you know, wow. Uh, but there were maybe like, you know, 75 people there. And um, the piece didn't really have an audience. It came out on a, on a Columbia Masterworks record in 1969, a year and a half after Come Out, which was the piece that was done after this, was released on Columbia. And that really, uh, that, that got a lot of attention. So this piece kind of was in the shadow of that first piece. Now, I want to ask you about the, um, the tape center we just talked about, where you just mentioned, because I know that you, you weren't really involved. You did present your work there, but there's some interesting things to talk about. But you were just talking about your day job at the time. Now, a lot of people here... Are Night job post office, night job, day job, whatever. Um, but a lot of people are in a similar position of having to do day jobs until they reach that point where they can bridge into a full-time music career. What's the benefit? Or what was the benefit for you of having that day job and how did you use that to feed your music? Necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, you know, you, you, you do... I, I, had a, I had an MA in music and I, would, I could have pursued you know, applying to University X, Y, and Z, teaching harmony and theory in Nebraska or, <laughs> or you know, some major city perhaps. And I just felt up to there with the academic world, uh, I, I, I just felt that 
I had a teacher earlier on that I admired a lot in New York, and he eventually, uh, he was a good friend of Thelonious Monk, did the arrangements for Thelonious Monk's Town Hall concerts, and he got asked to join the Juilliard faculty in New York, and I saw his shoulders <laughs> sag. Um, so I think the academic career, I mean, again, I don't think for you people, that's not, although who knows, you know, anything, anything can become academic, including, you know, becoming a DJ. I don't, I'm sure that there are universities in, in UK now that are beginning to open up right, recording labs and you'll get your uh, undergraduate degree. What did you read? Well, I read DJ, you know. <laughs> so anything can be turned into academic trash. No question about it. You, you're, you're not, you're not exempt. But, uh, in, in, in my time, it was, you know, composers. I suppose if you went through the, uh, you know, the, um, we call them W-9 forms, the, the, your, your tax return forms of every composer in America, somewhere between 90 and 95% of them would be at universities. And I'm not, I'm not you know, looking down my nose. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really the job that is, is most open to you. But I felt, you know, the, the, there's kind of myth. Well, you teach during the day, and then you, you're free at so-and-so. and you But there's a certain amount of energy that goes into teaching people, it seems to me. And if you don't give them that energy, then you're, you're immoral. And if you do give them that energy, then you're wiped out. Because there's just so much energy that anybody has. So I'd rather drive a cab where I don't give it. I bug the cab. And I made a tape piece, you know. I mean, I stopped the cab and I played shows with the San Francisco meme troupe with Phil Lesh, who became the grace, bass player with the Grateful Dead. You know, I had a good time driving a cab. And um, I wasn't invested in it, you know what I mean? I could think about music, I could bug the cab, I could, you know, take time off and play a show. I mean, it, it really fit me, and I was making more money than most assistant professors, too. <laughs> I think that's, that's the thing that occurred to me, because you were in the cab, you're on street level in a cab, you're interacting with street culture in a very direct way. Yes. And that street culture and the sound of the street, or the sounds of street life are very present in your music in a recurring way throughout the whole of your career. Um, do you think that that period of your life of driving around in cabs and being very much on the streets was influential for you musically? Well, you could say I did city life because I drove a cab in San Francisco. I don't know how true that would be, but um, I mean, I'm a native New Yorker, as you can probably tell. Uh, and uh, I think all music comes from a time and a place. Beatles come from 60s England. Kurt Weill comes from the Weimar Republic in Germany. Bach comes from, you know, Eastern Germany, the Baroque period. Um, I come from, you know, New York and, and the West Coast in the 1960s and 70s. And the composers that we know and love, I think, give honest expression to that. Not by trying to, hey, I'm going to write an American piece. You know, forget that. You just are who you are. And if you just do what you really are, then that music will bear evidence to the honesty of your situation, no matter what it is. And right now, obviously, what you guys are doing is, is, is evidence of what's going on in the world now. And how well you do it will determine how long and how much interest there is in it. Because musical quality doesn't change. And it all feels, there was, <laughs> there was a story about um, George Gershwin meeting Alban Berg. Alban Berg was a friend of Schoenberg's, you know, very, very, and uh, Gershwin was supposedly a little bit nervous, you know, going in to meet him. And Berg could tell that, so he said to Gershwin, Mr. Gershwin, music is music. So uh, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the kind of uh, of truth that that stays the case. So um, I'm sorry, I'm, I have, I'm losing the train no, of thought no, no. here. Please, I apologise because that was a, a fantastic thought there. Um, one thing I would like to ask you about is you, as a young man, being obsessed by Coltrane. I understand you went to see him 50 times or more. Well, I didn't count, but it was a lot. Yeah. So, so where would you see him, and and how, and, and how sort of deep was your connection to the music? Perhaps paint us a picture. Uh, so Coltrane, when I was at Juilliard in New York at the Five Spot a lot, um, saw him in San Francisco at the Jazz Workshop. Once saw him at the Jazz Workshop with Eric Dolphy. And Eric Dolphy was responsible for the bass clarinets and music for AT musicians. It's a real steal. <laughs> um, I brought that in. We could talk about that briefly. Um, 
why was I so interested and why were so many other people, Terry Riley and Mont Young and anybody with a pair of ears so interested in Coltrane? Uh, I would highly recommend um, an album called Africa Brass. Uh, not necessarily the most famous album of his, but uh, uh, for musicians in terms of, uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of an extreme form. Africa Brass is about a half an hour long, and it's got a very big band, and it's scored by uh, Eric Dolphy did the arrangements. And I think there's French horns doing glissando. It sounds like elephants coming through the jungle. But what's interesting about the record is that the whole 30-odd minutes is on E. You know, you know how jazz musicians talk, hey, man, what the changes? You know, What's the changes? E. No, no, no. What's the changes? E. E for half an hour. Well, wait a minute. Come on, you know. E for half an hour? Well, it's built on the low E of the double bass. It's played by Jimmy Garrison. And you would say, well, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's stupid. That's, that's too boring. But it's not. It is definitely not boring. <laughs> now, Why? What's, 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 what's going on to compensate for the lack of harmonic movement? Now, of course, you live at a time when a lot of this is happening, a lot of water under the bridge, but it, I'm talking 1963, 64, 65. There's incredible melodic invention. Sometimes Coltrane is playing these gorgeous melodies. Sometimes he's screaming noise through the horn. There are, as I say, these elephant glissandos going on, which are basically French horns playing glissandos scored by Eric Dolphy, who was an amazing musician who's one of the great alto saxophone players and, you know, a very schooled musician as well. And um, in two drummers, Elvin Jones being one of the most inventive jazz drummers who I, mean, I think who ever lived. And I forget, I think Rashid Ali was the other drummer. So you've got incredible amount of, harm, of rhythmic complexity, timbral variety, and melodic invention, and they more than compensate for the harmonic constancy. As a matter of fact, there's a kind of tension and intensity because it doesn't change. There was, at this same period in time, there was a Motown tune from Junior Walker, a saxophone player back in, in Detroit, six, called Shotgun. And the bass, was, bass line was like this. Bum, ba-dee-da, ba-ba-dum, ba-dee-da, ba-ba-dum. You're waiting for the other section. There is no other section. Ba -da 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 -da. <laughs> and because it didn't change, you know, it just had this kind of like, you know, warning, and he didn't. And it was the, so there was something, as I was saying before, in the air, in America, in the mid-60s, about harmonic stasis. We were hearing... Ravi Shankar coming in from India. We were hearing Balinese and Indonesian music. We were hearing African drumming. We were hearing John Coltrane. We were hearing stuff coming in from uh, Junior Walker and other people in Motown. Bob Dylan ain't going to work on Maggie's Farm no more. And a lot of stuff on that first album is a lot of the one chord. Well, there's a little turnaround of four and five, right back on one. And kind of, you know, that incredible, non but wonderful voice that he has. So there was this thing in the air coming in from various sources outside of the West, from jazz, from popular music, which was pointing in this direction. And without that, I never would have done what I'd done. Riley would never have written in C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things come from a certain time and a certain place. You would, if this hardware wasn't around, you'd be doing something else. It evolved. It's like we interact with what's around us. And that's... That's, in a sense, folk music. I mean, what you guys, as I understand, are doing is basically now a kind of folk music which has become codified and is already, you know, being studied and, and multiplied, but it spontaneously arose in the culture and then many, many people are now developing it. And I've always seen, you know, pop music is, you know, is the folk music of our time. Folk music. So Dylan's plugging in was, in a sense, the end of that old kind of Woody Guthrie folk music and the beginning of firmly establishing rock music as the folk music of our culture and now the further developments thereof and when you look in the window of a music store you know what do you see you see electronics and that's the folk instruments of our time that's that's how i see it if we're staying in new york for the moment around this time what did the city sound like because so much of your music is based on what i imagine is your um, the way you hear the environment around you. How did it sound? Noisy. 
I used to walk around New York with earplugs in. Um, and I, now, now we've moved out. Um, should I play some of City Life? Okay, so we're gonna, what I wanted to do was to do something nice and, you know, like I felt after It's Gonna Rain and, and then there was another tape piece called Come Out that, you know, this was a fantastic technique, this phasing idea. But, you know, tapes can do it. Windshield wipers on a bus can do it. Bells at a railroad crossing can do it. But I can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. And finally, I just said, I'm stuck in tape recorder. And I made a tape loop of a piano pattern. I sat down with it and closed my eyes. And I found, wow. I just got as slowly ahead of it as I could, and this piece piano phase came out, which eventually could be done by two pianos and is done by two pianos, and it's a recording of it here. So I thought I'd play that next. But yeah, no, no let, let's do that because I wanted to ask you about that. Actually, I, I read something that you'd said about when you did that, you needed to listen in a way you'd never listened before. So is it possible? I'm, I'm assuming it is possible sure. then to um, improve or radically alter the way you listen through practice. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, that's uh, Nareet Tillis and Edmund Neiman playing two pianos. Now, how do, you, how do you play that piece? First of all, you memorize the notes because they're obviously pretty easy. Put the notation on the side. One person starts, the other person closes their eyes probably and gets in unison. And then and maybe nods at the other person like, okay, I'm going to try to move now. <laughs> <laughs> and then tries to slide ahead as slowly as they can against the other player. Now, the other player is <laughs> got the easy part. I don't think so. I usually do the phasing. I'm, I'm you know, high metabolism. But uh, the hard part is just like just staying put because it's like a vacuum cleaner. You know, this, this tempo is going up and you've got to say, no, I'm not going to go with it. They're, and I'm going to let them pass me. So there's like a physical force to pull you into this relationship, but you want to stay in the irrational, irrational relationship. And if you do that right, you get this kind of like spinning around and then finally it gels. And that's what you just heard too. And of course, eventually it goes around and comes back in unison the way it's going to rain did. But for me, this was like a, look, ma, no tape. So it opened the floodgates to, you know, working with instruments. Because I was a composer, you know. I mean, I, I didn't want to be, you know, the little tape maker, you know. And they, <laughs> so, I mean, I, that, again, you know, I'm not, no casting aspersions on people who do with the laptop music. Everything, everything has its place. But me, at that time, that's how I felt. How difficult did you find that transition, or, or how interesting did you find that trans- transition between machine and musician? I found it first, you know, incredibly, you know, like I was saying, you know, like, I'm trapped, you know, this can never be done. What have I done? You know, I can't leave this thing and I can't do it live. And I, and then I finally said, you know, well, let's try it. And I, I realized I could do it against tape. Then another friend and I could do it together. And then, you know, then other people started doing it. I felt liberated. I felt like exhilarated. I felt like the door had opened and, and that led to drumming, which if you want to go to Queen Elizabeth, well, it's sold out. But if those of you who are there tonight, you'll hear drumming, which was the last piece to use the facing technique in 1971. Never used it since. Why? Because it is a weird technique. I mean, it's a strange... It's, if you go to a conventional music school anywhere in the Western or world or Japan or anywhere else, they will not teach you how to face, except maybe some teacher who's into my music will teach you how to do that. The percussionist will do it. And uh, there are other ways of getting what you could... what is called, like, row, 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 you boat, a cannon or a round. That's basically what's going on here. That's what's going on It's Gonna Rain. It's like one sound against itself rhythmically displaced. That's a canon. Forget all the rest. The rest is like, it could be somebody is a Pullman in the 13th century. It can be Johann Sebastian Bach. It can be Bella Bartok. It could be Steve Ra. It's one thing against itself rhythmically displaced. That's canon around. So this is that principle, but the, but the odd part is, is that usually it's like, run, 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 your bones down the stream. And unmerrily, you come in with row. That's the way it is. Okay, well, that's one way that it is. The way it is here is that people come in together and irrationally slide ahead. So in a sense, it's kind of a footnote, if you like, to the history of imitative counterpoint or round or canon, whatever you want to call it, in the Western world. Now, this is not something you would find in Africa or Bali or anywhere else. This is really quite unique to our, uh, our civilization. Why? Because the idea came from a machine. Now, this is 
one of the things I wanted to get across. We live at a time when it's possible to get ideas for live music from machines and get ideas for computer music from live music that are perfectly valid and that will work if you, you know, get it right. And that, to me, is a very is a kind of solution to the people who look at anybody who does electronic music as a bunch of robots. Got it? You know, I mean, that, that whole syndrome is locked on the idea that you've got your mind and eyes and ears closed to anything that has to do with live music. And I think that's, that would be an unfortunate situation to be in. But it's the same way from the people who are into live music. And I think nowadays we live in a culture where everybody is open to this. This is pretty much, I think, what I'm saying is probably well understood by all of you here. That... But for me, it was really a big deal because it was not something that was the case. There were just a few people who were beginning to see, hey, you know, these, these, are, inter these are permeable divisions. And this is a very, very clear example of that, just taking it right from the tape, putting it right into instruments. I wanted to ask you something about drumming. I understand the Steve Reich and musicians, the ensemble. Um, when you gave them the piece, you wouldn't give them notation for it. You right. taught it to them. Right and made them learn it. So they had to feel the music and learn it without seeing it. Now, a lot of people here are making music on programs where you almost can't avoid seeing the music because it's there in front of you. What is the benefit of not seeing music, but learning it and perhaps, well, learning it without seeing it? Um, this, is, this, is a big, this is a big deal question. <laughs> uh, when music began, and none of us were around, um, we can only speculate, but we know there was no notation. We can be sure about that. Um, the greatest living scholar, uh, musicologist today in my book is Richard Cheruskin, who just finished the six-volume Oxford History of Music in the West. And uh, he is not only brilliant, but he's also a pretty hip guy. And he, uh, he says, well, look, I'm, I'm basically writing uh, at a time when notation began so that I can refer to things that I can, you know, see. And I realize that I'm entering, and he meant now, a period when that very notation is in question. Because we are moving on many levels, you know, towards, you know, I mean, the normal position for a, <laughs> normal position for a human being today walking down the street is like this, right? <laughs> you walk down the street in London, you walk down the street in New York, most people are in that position or some variation of that position. Now, that's not without consequence. I mean, that's, that's leaving a mark. And people of all ages, people sometimes surprisingly, you know, how, how old some people are and are still doing that. And certainly, obviously, the young people. So, um, Notation starts, I don't know, notation starts somewhere around the 10th, 11th century. And then notation is quite different then than it is now. We have, there's lots of arguments about what is, I love Periton. Periton was like in the 11th century in Paris at Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, and uh, writing things out, but you, you realize that writing wasn't the main deal. Writing was just kind of like, well, you know, I like to save this for posterity, blah, 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 blah. But he was a singer. And he would sing them the parts. The way a guitar player would say, hey, man, it goes like this, and the bass line goes like that, and you do it a few times, and that's how I've seen people operate, I'm sure. How many people here are involved in, in live music? Okay, so, I mean, is this an experience that rings a bell for you? Okay. Um, that's really how it all begins. Then the idea of notation appears in certain cultures. Uh, I... I know there's no notation that I'm aware of in West Africa, and I don't think it's in East Africa. I think in Indonesia there may be some isolated forms of notation, certainly not ours. In Japan, I think they have some notation for gagaku. Uh, the imperial household music, very, very high level, of very beautiful art music. Sounds electronic, the show, doesn't it? Um, but, I mean, it's, it's a marginal thing, notation. I mean, if you were to take a balloon view of the earth and a balloon view of history, say, well, there's this little pocket here where they wrote things down. So when people talk about pop music, classical music, I say, well, wait. I say, why don't you just talk about notated music and non-notated music, of which non-notated music is enormous, and notated music, I mean, globally, historically speaking, and notated music is a, is a small subdivision thereof. And that's not to belittle it. I mean, I'm spending my life doing it, and I, and I hope there's some future in it, but, you know, sometimes I wonder. 
<laughs> so um, that's that. Mm, thank you. Uh, talking about this sort of non-notated music and notated music leads us neatly to Ghana, uh, where you visited for a few weeks in the early 70s. And I know that you'd read about it before and then you studied at the University of Accra. Um, but I was interested because I remember a friend of mine going to Ghana and, and saying he experienced Ghanaian drumming in the villages and at these kind of essentially what were beach parties, but they were parties for everybody. They weren't kind of, you know, necessarily like a rave or something. And I just was intrigued about what you'd experienced in Ghana. Were you mostly in the university or were you kind of out and about as well? And what did you, what did you hear? Well, I went to Ghana in 1970 when uh, it was quite different than it is today. And um, I was officially living outside of Legon, which is a sort of suburb of Accra, which is the capital, where there is a, a university and where the Ghana Dance Ensemble was formed. The Ghana Dance Ensemble is basically sort of a quasi-British, Ghana was a British colony. So they have a little bit of that mindset. And um, there are about five or six major tribes in Ghana and the Ghana Dance Ensemble felt, democratically speaking, they had to represent them all. Um, the Ashantis kind of have always ruled the roost. They also sold the slaves back in the good old days. And... Um, there are Gaz and um, Gaz Ashantis and Eves, who were sort of at the bottom of the uh, social ladder, uh, because they really weren't Ghanaians, they were from Togo. Well, what, the way I experienced the music was that it was not party music at all, although there was, I, I, I learned one tune, uh, um, Kahu. It's the basic rhythm in Gahu. And that's a good time to get drunk kind of piece. But most of the pieces are like, there's a new chief that's being installed. So we'll play this piece for it. Somebody dies. A lot of funeral music and what they call wake keeping, uh, meaning um, the anniversary of the death of, of whoever. And there was a lot of that because, you know, if you have a large family, there are a lot of people who, whose anniversary there is. Uh, so it's religiously oriented, it's politically oriented, it's historically oriented, and it's part of life. It's not a concert. When the Ghana Dance Ensemble was doing what the French call moment musico, they would take a three-day piece and give you 20 minutes of it because they were going to tour, you know, London and Tokyo and so on, and they couldn't do three days being you weren't in the village. But I did hang out with my, my teacher from the, uh, Gideon in, in, in uh, his village and managed to get malaria. I was wearing my sandals, Teresa. <laughs> I mean, I was taking the pills, but, you know, when you get 100 bites on each foot, you know, the pills don't work. So, uh, meanwhile, I mean, they did a piece that was like, you know, it seemed to take a full three days uh, with uh, people in boats and, you know, an incredible scene where there was a circle of, of men and they would go around and uh, sing and then isolate individuals. And I, I, it was in their language, so I couldn't tell. It was not in English. But it was like kind of like reading them, you know, you've been doing so-and-so, and you've been so-and-so. Now, you're going to stop doing that and straighten out? And, and, and the guy would kind of, you know. And then it, and it was like a kind of, it felt, again, I'm just projecting what I could read out of it. It just felt like a kind of moral upkeep of the community done in a musical form. Some quite beautiful stuff, stuff that would be very impossible to, to reproduce on, on stage. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked in New York City to talk at some musicological conference at the uh, Manor School of Music, and um, I noticed out in the audience a blackface, and uh, I went up to him, and he looked African, and I said, uh, where are you from? He said, I'm from Ghana. He must have been in his 50s or 60s. I said, oh, I said, I was in Ghana in 1970. I said, do they still play Agbaja and Gahu? And he paused, and he said, well, you know, that's grandpa's music. <laughs> <laughs> So, times change. Of course, time marches on always. So, so when you came back, I mean, you're saying it would have been impossible to have replicated. Obviously, no one. I wants had no to. desire to replicate. Of the course. last thing in my mind was to do that. Of course, and that's what I'm saying. No one with any creative kind of heart wants to replicate. So, how do you deal with that problem of having been inspired by something very locally specific and to make it yours? It's a very good question. I think a lot of people in my generation drowned in India or other locations because those, uh, the music of India, the music of Indonesia, the music of Africa are continents and thousands of years of music. And they're like an ocean. And a lot of people go wading in just as an individual with a whole lot of mistaken ideas 
um, and don't really get out of it. Uh, it was clear to me that what I was, I mean, I, uh, I'll give you a very concrete example. I, uh, I brought back a set of gongongs. They're like metal bells, iron bells, not steel, iron bells. Uh, double bells that are tuned usually in sixths or octaves. And atokes, which are, kind of look like a, well, let's say an enchilada. <laughs> and they're used uh, to accompany songs, very beautiful songs. And uh, what really got me was the accompaniment, because it's like interlocking bell sounds. And they, were, they weren't that big. So I, I put them in a, in a canvas sack. I think I had about six of them. And I bought a rattle back, a beautiful rattle that was, uh, I still have. And I thought, well, you know, I'd use it in my music. Just, you know, I don't know. I'll be so I got home to New York, and I don't have perfect pitch, so I didn't know, you know, what the exact notes were. So I take them to the piano, and I say, oh, these things are out of tune. So I thought, well, wait a minute, now. what do I need to do? I get out the metal file, you know. <laughs> and that, seems, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. So... I began to say, wait, I don't want these things in my music. I feel like, hello, I'm a gong-gong. I do so-and-so. Pleased to meet you, you know? Uh, so I said, look, I, t I took the members of my ensemble and taught them what I had been taught by my teacher to play these things. And we used to go to parties and we'd sit on the floor and we'd play, you know, they're called ha-cha-cha patterns. And everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was great. And, you know, when it, that, that was basically it. And it became clear to me, you know, I am not... An African. I am not going to pursue African music. I have learned something. What have I learned that can travel? What I've learned that can travel is the structure of a piece of music. How is it put together? We just talked about a cannon or a round. How does it sound? I have no idea how it sounds. I heard a cannon done by a friend, James Tenney, who's no longer with us, which was a glissando. And then they have another one coming up. And it sounded like a, we used to call it either the barber pole piece or busy day at JFK. <laughs> That's a cannon. It has nothing to do with somebody is a woman in, and then, I mean, which is like the 13th century. It's the structural idea which exists independently of any sound whatsoever. You can fill it with, you know, Scotch, Coca-Cola, Red Bull, you name it. It's an empty vessel. That's what can travel. Notes, the Balinese tune very differently than we do. Somebody gave me a gamelan and I'd say, oh man, thank you so much, and give it, to a, give it to the Tropa Museum in Holland or whatever. I would feel just burdened by it. It's like, you know, it's, a, it's the weight of a culture that's not mine. I want to go to 48th Street in Manhattan. And anything that's in that store, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the ensemble, there, that's an interesting thing, Steve Reich, and musicians, is Well, we're, 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 we're on um, pause right now. Does, but yes, we exist. But it's an interesting um, entity to have a group of musicians who work with you so closely, who are prepared to go to those extra lengths for you, and there's that kind of history with you as well. Um, what does it bring to your music to have a group of musicians like that who are with you for the music that you're performing in? Well, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, Count Basie or uh, Duke Ellington or any, 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 group, any group of musicians that stays together for a long time develops, you know, a, an ensemble which is inimitable. Uh, nevertheless, I suspect that tonight, Colin Curry Group is going to do an absolutely dynamite job on drumming. Uh, I mean, maybe I'll be wrong. I hope not. But I really feel that way. And I've heard, I've been to Riga, Riga in Latvia and heard people like burning music for 18 musicians right down to the ground. How? Well, they're young. They heard it when they were 14, 15, 16, 17. And they really know how to play their instruments and they really like the music. And it's just like, oh, you know, what's the problem? So in my generation, we, you know, we are the gold standard. <laughs> but happily... Other generations have come along who, who have just picked it up because they wanted to, and that's the only reason. That, that's, if that doesn't happen, you're dead. I mean, please forgive me for asking about something so obvious that you've talked about so much, but again, for the benefit of people here who might not know the stories or the genesis, can you tell us about Music for 18 Musicians? Can't tell you a damn thing. Let's put it on. <laughs> Obviously, there's a difference between the performance of a piece and the recording of a piece. What did you have to do to ensure that you got the recording that you wanted? Redo takes. <laughs> Splice. 
EQ, reverb, <laughs> the usual tricks. <laughs> so there was nothing specific about the way you mic'd it or anything that you particularly... Well, okay, okay, good, good, uh, good question. Um, the, 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 uh, the rasping bass clarinet, <laughs> uh, you have to mic them the wrong way. Uh, the way you mic a clarinet, classically speaking, B-flat would be, here's the instrument, you, don't, you go in the barrel. Uh, bass clarinet is probably the same thing. The bass clarinet kind of looks like that, the rest on the floor. And you would tend to come in on the barrel with a mic. Uh, no, <laughs> not to get this effect. To get that rasp, you go right into the barrel, which is wrong. If you went into the barrel of an E-flat man, it's just like, ouch. Uh, but if you go into the barrel of a, of a bass, then you get this rasp by turning up both the high frequencies and the low frequencies. And maybe a little bit of 3K too, just to make sure you just bite everything. Um, so that, that, that instrument in particular is, uh, everything else is pretty much normally, my, you know, marimbas from above and xylophones from above. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know Mike's. Judy Sherman's my producer, classically speaking. She's, you know, Grammy winning, wonderful ears around the corner. Um, uh, this is already none such so it's all Pro Tools. The first recording, obviously, was on ECM, was uh, analog. It was done in a pop studio in Paris on probably, uh, I think, 16-track Studer, probably, in those days. The Beatles did Sgt. Pepper on four tracks, so stick that in your nose, man. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have my score back? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so over to... Oh, if somebody else is looking at it, fine. Just give it to me at the end. Don't walk off with it. I've only got one of those previews left. This when you Take as much time as you want, but just when, you're, when I leave, let me leave with it. <laughs> it will come back. Don't worry. Okay. It will come back. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I appreciate being here. This is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in London. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.